Welcome to another interview for In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Simon Brown, a PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley, and I had the chance to talk to Holly Case, a professor of history at Brown University, about her recent book, The Age of Questions, out from Princeton University Press last year. The book takes a panoramic view across languages and national boundaries to follow the history of the question form, as it became the predominant way to organize intellectual inquiry and political debate in the long 19th century. From the Jewish question and the social question, to the Hungarian question and the tuberculosis question, this form abounded in newspaper columns and scholarly essays. We talk about the international public sphere, the gap between ideal and practice, and the work of questions in historical scholarship today. My first question is about how you came to the question in your book. As you describe, the question form was so pervasive across 19th century literature that I imagine it would be hard to even recognize and to recognize that it has a history. So when did you start to recognize this form and what did it take for you to realize that it was something unique to the 19th century? Uh, I'd say a couple of things. Um, First of all, uh, my first book was on the Transylvanian question. And then I took that mode quite seriously as a mode of analysis. And I assumed that the Transylvanian question was a thing that was a fixed um, problem or issue and that I could say what it was and that relatively speaking, it was a stable issue. And then um, I had a, a section where in that book where I talked about the relationship between the Jewish question and the Transylvanian question and how they interfered with one another. And this was my first foray into thinking about more than one question at a, at a time, but I considered both of them to be fairly stable, uh, even as I saw them interacting with one another. And then I was presenting on this book and somebody, Paul Hannebrink, uh, who just wrote a great book on Judeo-Bolshevism, asked me, uh, well, are these two questions related to the other ones, like the woman question or the social question? And I didn't, I couldn't say. And actually it caused me to think in a very different way about what these things are, these questions, because it started, uh, started me down a road of wondering whether there is something like a family resemblance between questions? And if so, like, what would that family resemblance consist in? And that's, uh, that was sort of the opening question, if you will, to the history of questions as I've written it. It's interesting because the question form, kind of, as you describe, you can find it in so many places. Is there a particular genre or a set of genres that it either influences or are there particular kinds of texts that you find it more pervasive in than others? Yeah, and it varies by time also. So it's um, a lot of the initial considerations of questions were uh, attempts to influence parliamentary debates and uh, issues that were being decided um, in the British Parliament in particular in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And so people would publish pamphlets. It was basically a publicistic genre that would seek to influence uh, the outcome of a particular parliamentary proceeding. 
Then there was a lot of what I would call questioneering and discussions around the fallout of the Napoleonic Wars. So in some of the treaty negotiations and discussions, um, an assortment of questions came up in the discussions about what needed to be solved around that time. So things like the Polish question, for example, makes an appearance in those discussions as well as a handful of others. But for the most part, in the first half of the 19th century, I see it as largely a publicistic genre. And... um, it's, uh, this is not consistently the case. There are exceptions. Sometimes you'll find uh, figures discussing questions behind the archival wall, so to speak, in internal uh, discussions of governments, for example. Um, but uh, largely, I would say it's of the publicistic genre, but then it spreads uh, into other genres. And So it tries to make forays or it it makes uh, limited forays into things like philosophy and literature. But there is kind of an interesting, uh, seemingly hard boundary or an attempt at maintaining a hard boundary uh, on the part of some who try to keep questions out of literature and philosophy. And what's interesting to me about philosophy in particular is that a lot of this has to do with the way that questions are formulated as something of their time and philosophy uh, aspires to the transhistorical. And so the timeliness of questions seemed to preclude their entry into philosophy. By the same token, if you look at, uh, if you look at questions long enough, you see that towards the end of the 19th century, there's an aspiration on the part of many uh, querists, if you will, uh, to achieve that kind of transhistorical um, quality to questions or a fear that questions, even though they're timely, are also kind of perennial, that they don't go away and that they may never go away. Yeah, and that's interesting to think about with a case like of someone like, like Marx writing on the Jewish question, which we might talk about mm-hmm. a little later, uh, the extent to which reading a text like that is very much engaged with contemporary concerns, local politics and polemics, but is now still read as a, a, a kind of classic work of philosophy addressing universal questions. Um, it'd be interesting to think about other examples that might fit that mold. Um, but to return to what you were describing at the beginning um, with the kind of parliamentary origins of the question form in England. I'm curious if you could talk about how it moves outside of Great Britain um, to the extent that by the middle of the 19th century, as you describe, it seems to be in many different places. And it's also being used to frame politics and political questions around certain nations, whether it's the Polish question, the Hungarian question. Can you talk about how the spread of the question form, does it does it suggest that the kind of the public sphere in the 19th century was was more international or does it suggest that it was more nationally specific because of the mm-hmm. pervasiveness of these kinds of questions? I say, I would say that something is um, and I talk about this a bit in the book that something is emerging in this uh, at the origin of questions. And that's something that I would call the international public sphere. 
And this definitely has a national component. So it's not that it's internationalist. Um, it has a, a national component. But for example, if you look at some of the people who are advocating for a particular outcome or a particular solution to the Polish question, they're making their appeals in France and Britain, for example, and they're making those appeals to members of parliament and significant figures. Um, and to some extent, this is true of advocates for the Greeks or um, other um nationalities that are trying to achieve uh, national independence or to regain national independence. And so there is an attempt on the part of these figures to internationalize uh, questions as a way of seeing them solved in a manner that they consider uh, the right one. So for many of the people who are pushing um, for a particular solution of the Polish question in France and Britain, they wanted Poland to be independent again after the three um, partitions of the late 18th century, and particularly after the partial um, liberation of Poland during the Napoleonic Wars. And so there was a lot of advocacy in international circles to try to achieve a particular solution. And that this um, meant that even though these people weren't generally writing in Polish to other Poles. They were advocating a particular national solution to a question that they cast as international. So part of the case that they made was that the Polish question is not just about Poland. It's really about everyone. And so they made an attempt uh, to connect it to other questions that uh, people in these areas considered relevant to themselves so they said this is uh, related, for example, to the uh, Eastern question, which was a major preoccupation um, of the time if we're looking at the first half of the 19th century, and as well as a series of other questions as a way of saying, this isn't just about us here in Poland, this is also about you, it's about Europe, and if you don't solve it in accordance to our wishes, then this could be also bad for you. So it was an attempt not just to address an international audience, but to internationalize the problem of Poland. And this is just one particular example um, of many. And it's not that all questions behave uh, precisely in this manner, but there are certain questions that I would consider to be uh, especially prominent that sort of carry the tone of um of queerism across the 19th century. And the Polish question is definitely one of those. You also spoke of the Jewish question, that's certainly another, but the social question, um, which is perpetually uh, subject to internationalization in the appeals that get made, but also to nationalization. And you were talking, you were asking about how questions spread. Um, that's something that I can only partially answer. And I hope that uh, researchers in the future will try to establish um, with greater certainty than I have the precise uh, means by which they've spread, because I've only seen in a couple of cases mm. how particular questions seem to jump from one context to, to another. And I have some anecdotal evidence that suggests that certain questions, for example, spread through the treaty negotiations uh, around the Napoleonic Wars at the Congress of Vienna and then the subsequent Congress of Verona. Hmm. 
Um, and then there are some instances where I found uh, an article that suggests that a French person went to a debating club where a certain question was being discussed. They came back to France. They wrote about it there. And so you can kind of see how these things spread in a way, but I don't really have a clear picture in the case of every question about how it did. Uh, I can only say, for example, that the Jewish question, even though historians have generally said that it has its origins in Germany, it probably doesn't. I've found references uh, that are prior to the German ones in the British context, for example. Um, and so I can only offer correctives. I can't really offer a tight timeline, uh, but also, a, you know, a clear vector in the case of all questions for precisely when was the first mention. All of this is uh, based on the um, partially on research uh, done with uh, searches for particular terms, but these searches are incredibly unreliable. And so even though I've done many, many such searches for terms in full text, for um, particular newspapers, publicistic venues, etc., parliamentary proceedings, you don't necessarily uh, turn up what uh, you're looking for. And oftentimes I would find a reference that was prior that didn't turn up in any of the searches, or I would get what's more common is false positives. And I've had a lot of people you know, uh, write to me and say, oh, I found one that predates when you say merged, and one of the other problems I talk about in the book is that people tended to backdate questions. So they, they said that they existed before they actually appeared as such. And so once a question emerged, um, somebody might claim that it had been around since the time of Moses in the, in the instance of the Jewish question, for example, uh, when, in fact, if you look at the formulation, the Jewish question, it's uh, clearly of a 19th century vintage, um, and uh, that this projection backwards was meant to have the effect of producing a sense that it had been around for a very long time, and that therefore a solution was pretty much overdue. And so it was a way of creating a sense of urgency around questions, but it also speaks to um, a phenomenon that's kind of a uh, that troubles uh, the research into questions, which is my approach has been uh, to look at when the formulation emerges, uh, the X question. But you could, and people have, uh, looked at, okay, the issues that I consider to be um, relevant to the Jewish question, when did those issues emerge, like Jewish emancipation, for example? But when one starts to do that, one becomes a querist in one's own right. Like you're deciding what a question is. You're not looking at the history of the formulation per se. So I've been pretty strict about sticking to the origin of the formulation. And uh, there it's oftentimes much later than people think. And oftentimes people will name something a question retrospectively that wasn't at the time. Um, and so there are a lot of false positives that come up when one tries to trace the precise uh, origins of questions. But I could go on about this at <laughs> much greater length. Because the, the kind of research method is, is so interesting that you're trying to follow the actual formulation, you know, the X question. Um, do you find that 
over the course of the 19th century, was that framing more and more prominent in, in the sources that you found that used the formulation in the sense that, was it the case that as time went on, more and more people might title their books you know, on the Eastern question or on the Jewish question, whereas earlier you might find the question form just embedded in the text itself without it being as prominent? Or, or is the, the location, I suppose, of the question formulation, is it pretty much stays the same throughout? That's a good one. And it's, it's extremely interesting, or at least this was to me. So a lot of the earliest forms that you see of questions, um, like the Boolean question, for example, it appears in the title of a pamphlet. So, you know, on the Boolean question or some, something like that. But it doesn't actually appear in the text. And then it starts to appear in titles and in texts. And so uh, throughout the 19th century, you have loads of texts that have, you know, the question formulation in the title, but also in the bodies, uh, in the body of texts. So just um, it makes uh, research a bit more <laughs> challenging because you can't just look at everything that has a title that has the question formulation because it appears also internally. But the interesting phenomenon to me is that as you get to the end of the 19th century and into the 20th, you start to see uh, some other phenomenon emerge, which is that um, with a book like uh, Theodor Herzl's um, The Jewish State, for example, or Kudenhove, Richard Kudenhove-Kalergi's Pan-Europe. So those are two books. One, one is titled The Jewish State. The other is titled Pan-Europe. And um, Herzl's The Jewish State is all about the Jewish question. It, you know, it sets itself up as a solution to the Jewish question. And the title is actually the solution, the Jewish state. And, it, and the same is true of um, Kudenhof Kalergi's text, Pan-Europe, that it's the title that carries the solution and then the text has the discussion of the question itself. And this speaks to a pretty broad transformation that's taken place over the course of the 19th century, whereby it's no longer the case that one has to introduce a question. One can already begin with the solution, so to speak, because the formulation already has that kind of uh, trajectory of, oh, there has to be a solution. The publicistic imperative is to offer one. So let's just front load it um, right at the start. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And to think about the kinds of questions that become so dominant and so apparent to so many people in different contexts that everyone is already prepared to answer it. I was wondering about one of the questions that you mentioned earlier, probably one of the most prevalent ones um, and most recognizable to contemporaries at the time was the social question. And you talk about the social question as somewhat exemplary of other kinds of questions because it very clearly shows how the question works in that it's about a, a contradiction between an ideal and a practice and how social reality actually appears. Um, just for the, to familiarize maybe our listeners with what these questions look like, can you just walk through a bit of what it means that something like the social question shows a contradiction between idea and practice and maybe the different 
forms that that contradiction took in the many ways that people formulated the social question? Yeah, it's um, it's more the case that people saw uh, that when there was a contradiction, such as between the ideal and the real, like we know that there should, you know, like at a certain point that there should be something like social equality or people think, you know, because we have the ideal of equality, then we know that that's somehow a possibility. And yet, you know, like the real suggests that we're nowhere near that as uh, that ideal. But since we're aware of the ideal, there's some kind of dissonance in uh, the 19th century brain that says, I know what this should look like because I have a sense, you know, like from the enlightenment of the trajectory of perfectibility with regard to the social order. And yet I'm looking around and it looks crappy. You know, it's not anywhere close. And uh, so a lot of people defined the social question as precisely the awareness of this contradiction um, and that a question emerges out of a contradiction such as this. And in the case of the social question, a lot of the um, the anxiety about the, uh, the gap between the ideal and the real produced uh, a kind of, a, you know, a, how would one call it, a protracted frustration that in some respects was unique to the social question. And this is where I find the age of questions interesting is that some questions have a trajectory that's um, that is in many respects its own thing. And the social question, I would say, is somewhat different from others in certain respects in that its intractability, which is not unique, a lot of other questions were presumed to have to be intractable, but the, the intractability of the social question, which um, meant that all kinds of attempts to do it, to solve it, uh, repeatedly failed, and then there was an awareness of that failure that then gave a further sense of urgency for solving it in a completely different way. And so if you look at the way that people tried to solve the social question over the 19th century, you'll see that in many respects they start, you know, they try to start with um, policy decisions that will change the structure of uh, let's say representation, taxation, etc. cetera. Uh, but then as they try to make these changes and they're either unable to or they make them and they don't have the desired effects and there's still this gap between the ideal and the real, then they say, well, you know, you can't really do this with policy patches and fixes at this level. What you have to do is you have to transform the human being. So you have to go into the human person and you have to create a new kind of person. Um, otherwise, this will never happen. And so then the focus comes to be on things like education um, and uh, other aspects of kind of individual development, because the assumption is that the in initial prerequisite to even solving the social question is that you have the right kind of person. And um, so it kind of migrates into the individual person, um, the locus of transformation. And this is where you get um, a lot of these ideas about the new man um, or the, the new person, if you will, that come out of um, this period. In part, the other, the other thing that the social question produces, um, and like I said, other questions have this kind of re repetitive insolubility nature that people get really frustrated about. 
and they seem rather intractable, like they're never going to go away, that it doesn't seem to matter what you do, they're still around. But in the case of the social question, people get, I would say, a bit more creative uh, in their thinking about how it might be solved given its intractability. So there are a couple of trajectories, um, one starting with the mathematical and the economic uh, with the social question that then shift to a kind of biological model. So, for example, uh, the mathematical or economic model suggests that there's kind of one solution and that that one solution is universal because numbers have this universal applicability. So it doesn't matter where or when or who, you can solve it in a particular way. Um, but if you shift to a biological metaphor and you treat the social question something like an illness, then it can show different symptoms in different subjects. For example, it can uh, be it can recur after it has um, you can relapse back into an illness after you've been supposedly cured or symptoms can be ameliorated, but then not totally cured. And so the biological metaphors allowed, you know, left some room for the insolubility problem, even if they didn't make people feel necessarily better about it. There are some, there were some interesting attempts to make people feel better about <laughs> intractability. The most interesting one to me is, um, was, was by the theosophist Rudolf Steiner, who uh, came up with a biological metaphor for understanding the social question, whereby he compared it to, it, instead of being like a sickness, it was more like hunger. So uh, you were going to have to address it periodically, um, but you couldn't address it with the same, you know, the same way every time. Like you can't, there's not one food that will like solve your hunger problem for all eternity. And if you don't eat, it's a problem, but it's not something that you have to absolutely freak out about because you're going to have to eat in a few hours again anyway. And so if you get used to the notion that you'll have to address the social question over and over again, and that it's never really going to go away, but that it's always going to be ameliorable or amelioratable, uh, if that's even a word, <laughs> you, uh, that it's less terrifying. And it's still life-threatening if you don't address it because you're not supposed to not eat. But it's not, uh, it's not the end of the world if you don't get that one solution because there is not one solution, according to this metaphor. So people got pretty creative about their thinking uh, with respect to the social question. And this was not true in the case of a lot of other questions. And I think part of the reason for that is that there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of minds who put their energies into trying address, to address the social question, and so they um, they got intrigued by um, its particular dynamic. And it's also a huge question, like what what is it even, you know? And people defined it differently, and it has this umbrella quality, which I talk about, which encompasses so many others. So, you know, like oftentimes the woman question and the Jewish question and, you know, a whole host of others are ranged underneath the social question as kind of sub uh, questions within this grand umbrella one, which is uh, which was the social question, for example. And so it had this uh, kind of quality of capturing all of these others within it. And so the, the pressure um, to 
solve all of those in one go with some idea about how to solve the social question was a great temptation. Yeah, and it's a really fascinating part of the story that you're talking about, how you say, and particularly in the later 19th century, the early 20th century, people do begin to think that some of these questions will be forever. I mean, they, they will keep returning, just as you described with the, the, the metaphor of hunger, that these are questions that will persist and that we shouldn't even be trying to figure out ultimate solutions to them. And one of the other, I guess, answers to the, I guess you might say, the problem of questions also were attempts to criticize the question form, it seemed, or at least to raise people's awareness of the question form. And so you give a couple examples of, um, for, as we already, as I already brought up, someone like Marx, who in the Jewish question, as you say, on the Jewish question, kind of criticizes the very notion of the question is the formulation that to ask a question is to already presuppose a certain kind of an answer and that it's already presenting something as a problem, which might very well not be. You also talk about someone like uh, Dostoevsky at least describing how kind of overwhelming the number of questions has become in his own period. I mean, do you think that thinkers like these or other thinkers, could they escape the question form? Could they think about answers to these problems and engage in public debate without being kind of sucked into this formulation? Or was it something so all-encompassing that even those people who might have been aware of its limitations still had to engage with it in the same ways? Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I can I can only speak uh, somewhat anecdotally here because I haven't plumbed the entire depths. I do think that certain people managed uh, certain figures of the 19th century that you would have thought would have had a hard time avoiding the formulation did somehow manage to avoid using the formulation. Um, and maybe not totally, but to a much greater extent than others. So Marx doesn't avoid it at all. I mean, he uses the formulation um, semi-regularly, not just with respect to the Jewish question, but with respect to uh, you know several others, um, not least of all the Eastern question about which he wrote a lot. But there are certain figures like Darwin or uh, Spencer, for example, who don't use it that much. Or, you know, in the case of Darwin, I'm not sure whether he uses it at all. I might be uh, misremembering here, but there are uh, several figures where I thought, you know, like I, I wouldn't have to go very far to find them using them, but somehow they didn't. Um, there are also a number of people who, so it, it's it's pretty pervasive, but I wouldn't say it's all pervasive. And I'm not entirely sure that, you know, or I'm, I'm not at all convinced that this has something to do with particular uh, disciplines or intellectual proclivities. I mean, it might have something to do with personal intellectual proclivities, but, you know, there are proto-sociologists who are thinking about um, questions up and down, I mean, for above all the social question, or, you know, there are naturalists who are thinking about um, questions as well. And so it's not necessarily a given that some of them will sit out the formulation. Um, 
But there, there is definitely a rising critique of the form, and I address this in a chapter um, on fairs, and uh, where I talk about how there's a fair amount of skepticism that starts to emerge. Tolstoy, for example, was completely exasperated uh, with the formulation, and he complained about it more or less constantly. Nonetheless, he also it also came up in. Um, in his literature, at least as a matter of discussion. Um, and uh, a number of others were pretty uh, harsh and oftentimes quite comical critics of what they saw as the ma- manipulative uh, mode of uh, queerism in the 19th century or in their time. And a lot of these formulations went something like this. So that basically the people who write about questions are the people who want there to be problems. And so these are kind of troublemaking figures um, and they're trying to make trouble around a certain issue. So a lot of the critiques of the Jewish question starting already in the 19th century are that the people who talk about the Jewish question are the people who see Jews as a problem. And so for someone who doesn't see Jews as a problem, uh, which included, of course, many Jews, there was no Jewish question. It was absurd to even speak in those terms. Um, and so that's the kind of um, the emancipationist uh, issue around questions. So the same was true with the Irish question, for example. If you wanted to see the Irish as a problem, um, then maybe you would talk about the Irish question. This wasn't categorically the case, however. There were a lot of Jews who used the formulation and used it to talk about emancipation or Irish. In the Irish case, it was a lot more common for the Irish to refer to the Irish question and to use it self-consciously or for the Poles to use the Polish question. And so it wasn't the case that everyone who talked about the X question was trying to problematize um, the population um, that it was, that was the, you know, kind of uh, at the core of the question. Uh, but a lot of people assumed that, well, this is the predominant mode in which questions operate. This happened a lot with the social question as well. So people who weren't sympathetic with the uh, reformist agenda of those who used the social question spoke of um, people who used that formulation as basically agitators who were trying to turn society upside down and uh, that these were people who were trying to um, upset uh, the status quo in a way that was dangerous or unproductive. And so there were, there were several critiques of questions. Plus, there were a lot of critiques of just kind of the what I would call the wankerishness of the publicistic genre, <laughs> you know, like the, position, you know, the positioning of people that, that was do, being done in the press. And this is one thing that might, might um, resonate somewhat with our time, that somehow everybody had to take a position on the Eastern question. And there was a lot of... Uh, uh, a kind of snooty and presumptuous position taking by people who, you know, could not be said to have understood or grasped the the factors or the discussions long going into the past about these questions. But it was uh, seen as kind of a the question du jour, and so you had to have an opinion on it. Tolstoy satirizes this. 
um, and so do others, you know, that you're not really salon fake if you don't have a particular view on the Polish question or on the Eastern question or on the social question, for example. And then you have like large contexts, and this is something I talk about in, in the case of Hungary, where there's a lot of um, kind of fear that the social question is going to migrate eventually into Hungary. It's almost like they can see it coming. <laughs> like and they can, they're watching it sort of come like a wave from the West and they're trying to calibrate their response to its arrival that somehow it's going to get to Hungary and they're going to have a social question as well. And then what? And so there's this kind of attitude of, um, the sense that, you know, like it's going to be introduced like some form of contraband into their uh, national context where, you know, many thought or many were of the view that it just doesn't belong here. You know, that's a question for another context. This is not ours. Whereas there were a number of, you know, social democratic type thinkers or leftists in Hungary who are saying, no, there already is a social question uh, you know, like if you pretend there isn't one, then that itself is a political stance. And so there's there are a lot of um, attempts to see questions as kind of like mirages or as manipulative uh, tropes um, or as ways of kind of um, in, of intellectuals to position themselves for status um, or politicians uh, likewise that um, – constituted a kind of critique of the question genre as uh, potentially totally farcical. Yeah, and, and thinking about those critiques of the question as a formation, um, you describe how in many ways one of the, the not permanent, but one of the kind of death blows to the question formation formulation was the final solution of the Holocaust and the Second World War, which people understood to be a one version of a solution to a perennial question. And so I was wondering if this is in some way the end of at least one phase of the age of questions, to what extent were contemporaries aware of that fact? To what extent did people identify the final solution as an outgrowth of the age of questions? And to what extent did the question form just kind of wither away um, in the in the aftermath of the war and, and of the Holocaust? Yeah, it was difficult not to identify it because, um, you know, Hitler and the Nazis and also many of their allies were very explicit that this was meant as the solution to the Jewish question. As a matter of fact, the formulation, the final solution the rest of it is the final solution to the Jewish question. And so um, a lot of this uh, I, re I talk about in the book as related to the presumed you know, intractability of questions that once you get to the First World War, you have some, um, and it's not just in the First World War, it starts earlier in other places where you get a sense that an intractable question um, can, is starts to be sometimes addressed with violence on the assumption that really the only way to deal with this is with ethnic cleansing or extermination. And so the Armenian question, for example, during the First World War, 
was a very common theme and um, a lot of the um, the action taken by the Ottoman state, but also by the Germans who were um, allied with the Ottoman state saw um, effectively the genocide in part as a solution to the Armenian question, or at least to the problem that the Ottoman state saw with the Armenians um, close to uh, their eastern frontier. And that this starts to be something in the ether. Um, and that Hitler is kind of, in some respects, he's a, a quintessential querist, um, like many in the 19th century, in that he does something that querists often did, which I talked about in connection with the polls, is that he connected a lot of questions to uh, each other, and he internationalized them. So um, he's he would say things, you know, or he and others in the Nazi party would say things like, this is not just about Germany, this is a question for everyone. And also that these questions, many of them were interrelated, and that in order to solve um, one of them, you had to kind of solve them all in some respects. And so he was... Um, he and others uh, among uh, the Germans and, and many of their allies uh, saw the Second World War as um, an opportunity to solve a number of questions that the, the so-called Great War had not resolved, particularly for, um, let's say, the losers of World War I. And so the final solution uh, is pretty central to that uh, constellation. And... Um, I think what has been lost in a lot of what we, uh, a lot of the way we think about questions, because we think about them in isolation, is, uh, that we don't necessarily recognize the extent to which um, other people tried, at least strategically, to connect them to one another, to suggest particular solutions in, in the way that they were being connected. And that this created a kind of momentum behind the possibility of uh, universal conflagration. So oftentimes in the run-up to World War I, for example, there would be um, this uh, agglutination of questions that the Polish question is related to the Eastern question, is related to, you know, like several others, and that in order to solve uh, one, you have to basically solve them all. And this creates um, the necessity to have not just a small localized solution, but you have to have a pretty significant overhaul of the entire social and geopolitical system if you start to think like this in order to solve a single question. And so it causes people to it caused people to think in these uh, kind of interrelated terms about questions. But then it um, it suggested that. Uh, all the, the the network of these questions was sort of such that in order to solve one, you had to solve them all. And so in order to avoid the universal war that could ensue if you didn't solve them, you basically had to have a universal war so that you could solve them all. So you had to create the, the tabula rasa. And so you had to you know do this to avoid the war, but you couldn't do that without having the war. And so universal war becomes this kind of um, problematic uh, whirlwind, if you will, at the center of the querist endeavor. And uh, World War I is an interesting example of 
this uh, phenomenon whereby you know questions had been aggregated to such an extent that people started to think that they all needed to be solved in one uh, go and that th this universal conflict offered that potential. Um, and the Second World War had much the same quality in the minds of um, the Nazis and others in Europe, that this was the chance finally to resolve um, these as yet unsolved uh, questions. And you can see after the war, the, the usual critiques emerging of, you know, for example, with the Jewish question that uh, this is when the very strong claim starts to be put forward that the only people talking about the Jewish question are those who see the Jews as a problem. And this continues to not be entirely true, but it is uh, much more out there in the ether. And it becomes interestingly more true as time goes on. And actually, if you look at the uh, post-World War II period, um, for the most part, people stop talking about the Jewish question as a question du jour, and they start talking about it as a historicizable phenomenon. So it drifts out of the publicistic realm and enters uh, the historiographic realm. Um, and so it's not that it disappears, but it becomes like an object of historical analysis rather than a thing that you talk about in the day-to-day and you can kind of see this happening in the 40s and the 50s, like the transformation taking place. I think I'm hoping that somebody will document this with greater precision than I have, because I was talking about a lot of questions I didn't uh, devote over much attention. But one thing that is remarkable about the Jewish question in particular is that the Jewish question emerges from the Second World War with a narrative of much more uniqueness than it did prior to that. So uh, prior to the Second World War, and definitely in the 19th century, there were a lot of people who saw the Jewish question in connection to other questions. But because, uh, at least in part, because Hitler and the Nazis and their allies made those, you know, made those connections also, those connections started to be seen as toxic but more importantly, the particular final solution to the Jewish question created um, this sense that uh, the Jewish question had always been something with a separate trajectory. Um, and this kind of weighed heavily then on the historiography. Whereas if you look at the 19th and early uh, 20th centuries, uh, that sense of it being super unique is not really as prevalent in the discussions of the Jewish question. And it was quite common for people to relate it to other questions and for even Jews uh, sympathetic to the goals of emancipation, et cetera, uh, to make those connections as well. Um, so uh, I wouldn't say that questions disappear after the Second World War, they certainly don't. But there is a more sensitivity to the possibility that you know, the question form is tainted, like, um, and it's, it's partially because uh, people had stopped believing in solutions a long time ago, in some respects, but then the final solution is like the ultimate uh, sort of coup de grace, if you will, that um, says not only, you know, is it impossible to, to think in these terms, but thinking in these terms uh, produces horrific, horrific outcomes. Um, and so, uh, 
And you, you can see a number of figures reflecting on questions in these terms or specific questions like the Irish question, for example. Um, but I would say that uh, questions don't disappear. Even in our time, in some places, people continue to use the formulation and they continue to speak in terms of solutions. So it's not totally gone. Um, and it has sort of episodic, uh, episodically continued. But I don't think it has the power, anything like the power it did um, over the 19th and into the first half of the 20th century. Right. And so you were describing uh, as, as the age of questions become part of the history as people begin to think of things like the Jewish question rather than as live debates, but as themselves historical objects. It does make me wonder on a kind of meta level, um, doing this research yourself, it, uh, as you know, to, to a great extent, a lot of the kind of canons of historical scholarship today are and the research methods are in many ways products of the 19th century. And I couldn't help but think as I was reading the book, the extent to which historical research today is so guided by questions and question posing. And I remember when I was first being uh, trained in graduate school, um, the idea that one had to come up with a research question was a kind of a, one of the, the first stages of any kind of historical writing, in fact, perhaps the most important stage was the posing of the question itself. So I just wonder from your research, if you ever found uh, kind of doing his, historical scholarship that the, the historical research methods itself seem to be products of this age of questions, if they seem to be still marked by the sense that uh, you know, his intellectual inquiry is guided by posing questions and solving them. Um, and and if, if that in any way, if it was the case that you recognize that, if that in any way changed the way you thought about your own historical writing. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, there's a lot there. I think one thing I would say is that one has to be careful seeing questions, you know, as a blanket category. So everything that falls under the category of question is uh, is not something that I've, you know, I haven't done research on everywhere that questions come up. I have uh, focused specifically on what I call the X question. So the Jewish question, the worker, the woman, you know, the Eastern, the Polish, you know, these ones. And so What's notable about these questions is that they're not really interrogatives. <laughs> they're when they, they use the word question, but what they mean is problem. And if you look in the into the etymology, that it's already there that a question and problem kind of slip between one another, and that these are not questions to be answered. These are construed as problems to be solved, and that's why they often a mathematized feel to them. And that's why you get things like, dis, you know, discussions of solutions or final solutions in connection with uh, questions rather than answers. Um, and uh, so I think you're absolutely right that a lot of our approach to uh, scholarship comes out of the 19th century. That is definitely the case. Um, where I would say what... Um, this has affected my own perspective on my own research is that, you know, once I, so a couple of things, this was an incredibly difficult book to write because 
the patterns of the 19th century were so strong. Um, the patterns of thinking were so strong, and that this is, um, and they're they're so strong that they they have this incredible weight on the historiography. It's like we've inherited a lot of our understanding of the 19th century from people who had particular views about the 19th century. And so, you know, this, this is why, you know, I rewrote this book three times <laughs> and in this third, it, I wouldn't recommend this by the way, <laughs> but this was the only way I, I, I could do it. And once the first time I wrote, you know, up separate questions, I, I did the trajectory of individual questions um, the second time I tried a more, some kind of more holistic approach that was an abysmal failure. And um, the, the third strategy that I chose, which is the ultimate one, is um, I felt like I could only get free of some of the 19th century's way of thinking, or I could only make apparent how pervasive it was by actually reliving aspects of it and showing how um, if you considered the different aspects together, you would get a completely different picture. So this is why I have a national argument. Um, I have like an argument about a progressive argument, uh, the farcical one. I showed these different faces of the 19th century. And in some cases, I even used the same piece of evidence in different parts of the analysis. Um, and I put the, these into kind of parallel chapters, but I also put them into a kind of argument with each other because on some matters there was perfect overlap, but the interpretive frame was very different. So the fact that questions are intractable, for example, meant different things for the purpose of the progressive trajectory than it did for the, um, for the farcical trajectory or the genocidal trajectory, for example. And so showing how these subcurrents within the 19th century fed into the interpretive frameworks of the time was the only way I could think of to get beyond these interpretive frameworks and to try to see the era like from some kind of altitude. And, you know, who knows if this has the desired <laughs> effect, but it, it forced me to um, consider how one would methodologically you know, get out of the 19th century enough to see um, the way that it pervades our thinking, not just about the 19th century, but in general. And so I think you've pointed to something very crucial um, with that statement. And, uh, you know, this, this book, it's kind of, I'm going to make a small uh, confession where if you consider, you know, like... <laughs> This book in relation to the first book that I wrote, in some respects, you know, they don't, they both speak to the question format. In other respects, they don't touch each other at all. But in in some respects, um, in the first book, I was operating according to that 19th century sensibility. I was effectively a querist. And in this book, I sort of realized, oh, okay. <laughs> If you look at it from a meta perspective, like I was part of something. I started to see myself as part of a, 
of a historical trajectory. And that doesn't mean that I now consider or that I consider everyone who has written something on questions in you know, the semi-19th century vein to have nothing interesting to say. There are lots of interesting things uh, to say. This is just like a different um, way of looking at that framework. And it's not, you know, like, it, it's not really the do-all, end-all in any, uh, in any respect. But I do think that um, for my purposes, at least, it was sort of a necessary um, attempt to abstract, you know, to, to see uh, myself, my own uh, work and uh, the work of my time from some kind of analytical distance. And also one thing that it helped me see, which is um, quite peculiar, is in, if you look at the 19th century, I think a lot of people have ideological um, stakes that they see in the trajectory of particular solutions to questions, etc. And I absolutely see where the politics of the 19th century kind of um, threads through these questions. But that threading is not in any way consistent. It is not the pattern. So it's not that all questions are progressive. It's not that all of them are genocidal. It's that there, there are patterns that uh, were produced by the question format that repeat, and they repeat across uh, political perspectives, and they repeat um, across a uh, kind of time, and they have a kind of trajectory of their own. And one of the things that this has made me aware of is the kind of patterns of argumentation that transcend, or maybe they, they underpin vastly different political positions. Um, and um, I think this is uh, something that uh, I'm, I've been trying to do for our present moment um, as well, to try to see, yes, there are these different political positions. Are there patterns of thinking that inform these political positions that are, in fact, quite similar to each other, even if the, the concrete content of the thinking is vastly different? And so uh, I've become intrigued by um, the emergence of particular patterns in um, political and social thought uh, more generally as a result of starting to see the 19th century um, from what I would call maybe this this altitude. Yeah, and that's a, a really interesting way to think about the connection between your your first book and this book. And before we go, I'm wondering if uh, you'd be interested in telling us a little bit about what you might be working on right now and what might uh, be in being the next book or the next project. One thing I am working on that, um, that I feel I can talk about is that I'm really interested in the philosophy of history and I've become more or less preoccupied with um, the you know, what has happened to the philosophy of history in our time and whether historians can or should have anything to say about the philosophy of history. So I probably am going to publish something on that theme in the near term. Well, well, great. And uh, when it does come out, I very much look forward to reading it. And Professor Holly Case, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you. This has been great times. <laughs>